Open your Bible to 2 John. So towards the end of the Word of God, you have 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. We're going to go into 2nd John, a very short book. Please study ahead. The plan is to study these small books right in front of Revelation. So God willing, we'll finish this book of 2nd John this Thursday, and then we'll go into 3rd John and then into Jude. So if you're making a good practice of studying in advance, just hang with us right here through these small epistles. There's a guide on our website that talks about studying the Bible. You guys, for centuries, the church didn't have all of these tools. And I'm not saying the tools are wrong, but you know, the, the best book to understand the Bible is the Bible. It sheds light on the verses that we're studying. So use the tools that we have there. They'll always point you back to the scriptures Let's look at the beginning of this book of 2 John. The elder. I'll ask you a few questions as we move through. The elder. Is this talking about being older or being an overseer? At this point, the apostle John is old. He's in his 90s. And life expectancy during this time was more like 55. So to have somebody be that old was really old for the day. So he's definitely advanced in years. All of the other apostles had been martyred at this time. So he's the one that people would come to and say, tell us about what it was like to see Jesus with your eyes. Tell us what it was like to touch him with your hands. The last living apostle, the experiences that he had, certainly he could have been called the elder in terms of years. He saw the coming of the Holy Spirit. He saw the church be birthed. He saw the beginning of it. He was exiled to the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ, and now here he is. So he can certainly say the elder as far as years. And look at this book. It's short, it's sweet, and it's strong. Some say it's not even a letter. It's a postcard, 13 verses. And he covers a lot of the same topics that he covered in the book of 1 John. But he's also an elder in terms of being an overseer in the church. He's a leader for the Lord. He teaches and we get these qualifications in the word of God of who elders are to be. And it's no small list of qualifications. They're, this is what a real leader in the body of Christ, an overseer, somebody who cares for God's people looks like in their life. These are the things that are alive. And so Peter wrote to his fellow elders or those who were also under shepherds. So you look at John He's advanced in years, and that way he's the elder. And you might say definite article there, the or the elder. But he's also the person who really cares for the body of Christ. He wants to see them grow. He's going to warn them against false teaching. He's going to say once again how important the truth is. We sang a lot about the truth this morning already. And he's going to remind us what our greatest joy or what our unsurpassed joy ought to be. So both in years and position. So the answer to the first question is both, older or overseer, both. He's serving, he's giving, and he's done it for quite a long time. The elder to the elect lady and her children. I ask a second question. A lady or the church? Is John writing to an individual, a certain lady and her kids, or is this referring to the bride of Christ? Because we know that Jesus is the bride, Jesus is the groom, we're the bride, and he has chosen us. Now, the answer to this question is, I'm not sure. Maybe you're sure, but I look at this and I look at the lessons that we might learn from it. 
Once again, it says the elect lady, and that kind of points to it being the church in one way. It's not an elect lady. It's not as though there, there's this woman and she was chosen by God, which each believer is chosen by the Lord. But then if you look down in the last verse, the children, this is verse 13, of your elect sister greet you. So it could be two different congregations or it could be two saved sisters. If you read the whole book and studied the whole book or at least the first few verses, you also saw that John toggles back and forth between the singular and the plural. He writes a few times in this book and just uses the word you, like in verse three. And then in verse four, he says your, addressing one person. But then look at five, six, and eight. He says we. So it seems that he's talking to a group. Some say that's the church, that's the bride of Christ, that's the elect lady. But couldn't the plural also refer to her children, her and her children? At this time, the church was under immense persecution. And because of that, the church began to operate in covert ways, and not all their language was right out in the open. So it could certainly be if this letter was intercepted, this could be to the elect lady, and Christians would know, hey, that's us. We're the bride of Christ. And this is something I've seen even in my lifetime when I was studying history and when I was in school, even at a very secular, secular university, there was no doubt they taught that Christians were greatly persecuted in the first, second, and third centuries. There was no doubt about it. They looked at what happened to the church, how the church was dispersed. They, look at, they looked at the different emperors of the Roman Empire. But now there's been a, guess what, a rewriting of history where, where they're saying, well, actually, things weren't that bad for Christians in, in the first century. There weren't really that many of them that were executed. There really weren't that many of them that were, were beaten. And these so-called historians have, have tried to rewrite it, saying that Christians were not that persecuted. I'm looking at um, Domitian, who was the, the emperor from 81 AD to 96. And listen to this. Domitian officially titled himself God the Lord. And he insisted that people called him Lord of the Earth. These are some of the names for himself. Invincible, Glory, Holy, and Thou Alone. So we have this man who is an earthly king, he's an emperor, and don't all those titles, and maybe you call yourself invincible, but some of those I'm thinking, you're not going to call yourself, you call me holy, you call me thou alone. This, and he demanded to be referred to and worshiped in that manner. How is that going to sit with Christians? Is any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ going to bow to such a man? No, they're not. And during this time, we see that the church was ravaged with persecution. And because of that, you might lean towards, this is probably the church, this elect lady. I've heard so much about Marcus Aurelius recently and about his scholarly philosophy and, and you know meditations and reading all this and he's he's one of those emperors that's put up on a pedestal because he was an intellectual but during his so-called reign christians were massacred you know he had great flowing words about how we should act towards each other as as people and men and women and brothers and sisters but tens of thousands of christians were killed under his reign so that might be a factor that would lean us towards saying this is the church the earliest teachers, the earliest commentators, as I'm reading what they said in, in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th century, 
they thought this referenced the church, almost without exception. The idea that it's an, invi- it's, that it's an individual is more recent. Um, but in reading those, one of their arguments was, well, the Bible is not really to an individual, it's to the body of Christ. But I want you to think about this. Aren't there some books that were actually written to an individual, but are still certainly the word of God, and they're to be applied to the word of God, to the church as the word of God? I mean, think of the whole book of Luke. Who's it written to? Theophilus, you said. It's written to a guy named Theophilus. How about the book of Acts? You said again, Theophilus. Some of you said most excellent Theophilus. It was written, that's what he's called. It's written to one man, but what's good for one is good for all. What's good for me as a believer is good for you as a believer. What's good for one church, whether it's in Ephesus or or Smyrna, is good for, for us. And that's this idea, this truth. You even look at this little book to the right, maybe it's on the very next page. Isn't it written to an individual? Have you went and read it in the third John? You have Gaius, he's receiving this letter from the Apostle John. You have the book of Philemon. So this idea that it can't be to an individual is, is re- really doesn't hold any water. If John did write this to a certain woman, it doesn't make it any less applicable. All of the Bible is for our learning and for our growth. I remind you of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So you are the elect lady, are you not? Yes, great. We got one guy who answered. You are. There are some very hesitant men out there, but even there wasn't a woman that cried. Yes, I am chosen of God. I'm the bride of Christ. I'm receiving this from my loving Lord, from my sacrificial Savior. And indeed, there's quite a bit of reproof. There's quite a bit of correction and instruction for righteousness in this book. So the answer to the second question is, I'm not sure. But I know that it applies to me. I know that it applies to us. He writes this in the middle of verse 1 whom I love in truth. And not only I, but also all those who have known the truth because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. I ask you the third question. Will you wage the war for truth? There is going to be a lot about the truth. In fact, it's mentioned in each of the first four verses. Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4, all talk about the truth. We must keep, listen, the truth in the center of our lives. The Apostle John is big on truth, and you and I ought to be big on truth. There is a war on truth. There's a truth war that's happening. And it's not just outside the body of Christ. It's not just outside the church. It's also within the church. It is this sway that's trying to pull people, and it's from the evil one, And he's trying to pull people away from the truth and into lies. He's sowing lies in the world, and the world is buying those lies. And he's also spreading lies within the church, in the hearts of God's people. That's what he'll do if he can. Now, I bring you back, please, to the very beginning. Isn't this what the serpent did in the garden when Eve was there, in the Garden of Eden? What the enemy, what Satan got Eve to do, listen, was to find this little technicality supposed technicality where God was wrong. 
where God isn't really giving you the whole truth. Oh, you know, God told you that if you eat from the tree that you're going to die, but you're not going to die. Have you ever had somebody, maybe one of your children, and we'll talk quite a bit about them later, they just technically try to find something wrong with what you've said or what you've done. And it's just like this little tiny thing. That's the way the rebellious are with God. Oh, you know, did you mean that? And they're just sitting there literally splitting hairs with you. So there's Satan with Eve in the garden. God's given her the truth. If you disobey me, if you eat of that tree, you will die. And the enemy comes along and says, you won't surely die. And then he feeds her this half-truth. If you eat, I mean, look how good the fruit is, first of all. Look at how pleasing it is to your eyes. Look at how desirable it is. But if you eat of this, it's going to give you some sort of wisdom. It's going to help you understand between right and wrong. That's kind of a partial truth. She is going to understand evil a lot more because she's going to be separated from God Almighty. So he sows these, these lies, and they're just these little technical problems, and he's getting her to do this, and he does the same thing to me and you, the enemy does. Isn't this true? He tries to get you to not think about the consequences of your actions. He tries to get you to don't think about the price that you'll pay for this. And isn't God so good to us that when we go astray, we don't have to wait until the afterlife to see that our sin is destructive. We can see, we can watch it in our own lives and in the lives of others. If you do this, there's going to be a terrible consequence. There's going to be a price to pay. There's, there's going to be huge problems in your life. He wants you and me to be short-term, so there's this war on the truth. Don't look down the road. Enjoy now, even though you can see that this life is destroying you. It's, it eats you up, and it's obvious, but the war on truth says don't look at tomorrow. If there is an eternity, your life today has no bearing on it. If there is an eternity, you don't need to think about it. Pilate's Pontius Pilate, before Jesus went to the cross, he stood before this worldly judge, this worldly proconsul. And Pilate asked this question of Jesus. He said, what is truth? Like, is there even truth? Or is truth just kind of like this weird idea? And aren't our lives like just whatever we can get away with? That's the way the enemy wants me to think. There really isn't truth. Your life is just about what you can get away with, what you can sneak around, how you can get away with it. And there, let me tell you this, it's the truth from God. He sees everything. There is no sneaking. Everything that's done in the dark will be revealed. That's the truth. Jesus prayed in the garden and he said, thy word is truth. Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. So we keep coming back to the Bible. We keep encouraging one another to study it and to memorize it and to dwell in it because we don't have any other truth that really matters except for the truth of God's word. And so we're admonished here in each of the first four verses, make truth central to your life. Don't be afraid to ask the question, is this really true? What does God say about it? Truth is an anchor. It's a pillar. It's a constant. And it isn't relative to culture or which century that we are in. There's no such thing as your truth and my truth. Truth is defined by God Almighty in his word, and I can't explain everything about it. Those will tell me about this, but I can't explain a whole lot about it. There are some things I don't understand, but how much truth can you actually understand? I would submit to you, you can understand quite a bit of it. 
that it's actually very logical. That what the Lord gives to us, it's, it's built into us as far as our consciences are concerned. There is this war on truth. And if you can be convinced that truth has changed, or if you can be convinced that God was wrong about truth, or if you can think that God doesn't really see, or if God does see my life, he doesn't really care. He's kind of left us to fend for ourselves. Then you're in that sea of uncertainty that leads to perishing. But if you follow the truth, the truth will set you free. The lie is that you're an accident, that you're going to die and rot in the ground, that if there is an eternity, you don't need to be concerned about it right now, even though you see the destruction of sin all around us. The truth is, is that there is an almighty creator God who came to earth as a man and lived, us, lived this life for us and loved us and then gave his life on the cross so that we could be forgiven of our crimes, of our sins, of our waywardness. He took on flesh. He loved us all the way to the cross, took our place, and then defeated death. So it tells us here, first of all, that we are to love in truth. Do you see that in the middle of verse 1? Whom I love in truth. That's the way we're supposed to actually love each other. Don't let it just be something that we talk about. Let it be a lifestyle. Put others before yourself. It's more blessed to give than it is to receive. If we went back to 1 John, we'd be reminded, beloved, let us love one another. Because love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Love in truth, not just with your words. Sing it, say it, and live it. How about in verse 2? We see it says there that we're supposed to abide in truth. This means that truth is supposed to be a protection for you, like you're in a strong house, you're in a fortress. Your abode is in the truth. Yes, this world is psycho, it's weird. Every day we see more of it, but you and I can be protected. We can abide in the truth that God has given us. We can live in that sheltered place. Satan's a schemer, and my selfishness has to be put down, but I want to live in a house of truth. I want to abide in Christ. I want to be fastened to him. So abide in truth. If we go to verse three, grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. So this verse says that we should have grace, mercy, and peace in truth. It's really possible to have like a token grace or a token mercy or a sort of peace. But do we have grace in truth? We certainly can. Do we have mercy in truth? You know what mercy is? Second chance. Man, do I need that or what? In truth, mercy is mine. Each day the sun comes up. We'll sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. Peace. You know what it's like to wrestle and to have peace some of the time and not all the time. Have peace in truth, in that fortress that God has provided to you. Abide in him. Don't just have the appearance of peace or the appearance of grace. Have the substance of it. Now we get to verse four where it speaks more of truth. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we received a commandment 
from the Father. And I'd like to couple this verse with 3 John 4. So we'll look at verse 4 in this book and verse 4 in the next book, and we'll, we'll study them at the same time. They're similar. They teach the same principle. Excellent cross-references for each other. It's probably on the next page in your Bible. Maybe you don't have to turn the page. Look at 3 John 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. So truth is, is not just a confession, although we should confess Jesus is Lord. Truth is, is not just gathering with the church, although we should not forsake the gathering of ourselves together. But a walk in truth, isn't that what verse 4 says in both of these books? Just one chapter, both verse 4s. A walk in truth means that it's, it's an action. It's something that affects each step that we take, each second that we're thinking. Follow the Lord on the straight and narrow. I bring your attention to 3 John 4, and something is added there. Both of those verses have joy. But I want you to see that in 3 John 4, it says, I have no greater joy. So he says, nothing surpasses the joy that I have than when I see you walking in the truth. When I see you living in the truth and actually putting your life into the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, nothing surpasses that for me. Now, there are some joys that may equal it. It says, I have no greater joy because as Christians, we have some wonderful joys. But the word of God says that we should have no greater joy than to see the church, than to see others walking in truth. And truth is found only in Jesus unsurpassed joy. So I'll ask you the fourth question based on verse four in both books. What is your unsurpassed joy for your kids and your grandkids? Is there a joy in your life that nothing else really can surpass? Maybe there's some equals. The day I see Jesus, that's going to be on the other side, but just the anticipation of seeing him but is there a great joy? Is there an unsurpassed joy in your life to see your kids walk in the truth? It's an ob obvious application for our homes first, and we'll move beyond that. But first, there's this narrower view of a broader truth. This verse 4, many times my dad wrote it in and cards to me, a birthday card, a graduation card, an anniversary card. This is the verse that I receive most often from him, and even many times from my mom too, Like if, and applying it to our house, saying, this is what's most important to me. Nothing delights me more than to see you actually live out the truth of Jesus Christ. That is success. That is what I celebrate that's what I want the most for you. For me, there is no greater joy. And now that I have kids that aren't little kids anymore, I understand that a little bit more as the Lord unfolds, tries to unfold our minds and get us to understand. Because when kids are little, then they're required to do what's right. Being rebellious or disrespectful is not an option for very long. They, they have to be obedient. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. So there's a lot of truth that they're living out, but you realize that when they're two, three, four, five, eight years old, they don't have a lot of options. We've got them cornered. 
At least we should have them cornered. This is the house that God has given to us, and we're going to walk according to his truth. But what happens as we have kids that aren't little kids anymore, they're, they're approaching adult, adulthood or they are adults, that joy to see them make a decision to live the truth instead of live the lie. That's a lot of joy that comes from that. When you see the one that you love so much, like look at the decision that they just made. And yeah, I've taught them that that was the right decision, but I couldn't corner them into it. They did that because God prompted them to walk in his truth. What a great joy that is. Can we honestly say that there's no greater joy for us as parents and grandparents? Man, a lot of people say that it is their joy. But when they talk about their kids and grandkids, it's oftentimes in terms of money or accomplishments or their career, their accolades, their popularity, their athleticism, their strength, their beauty. That says a lot. Because when we're, we can say, you know what, I don't want anything else more for my kid than for them to walk in the truth of Jesus. But then when we gush about our kids, is it about a lot of things that really shouldn't be that important? Can we honestly say, I would rather you be kind to your classmates than get an A? What do we ask about more? How'd you do on your test or were you kind to your classmates? Would you re I'd rather you be honest than get an award. Were you tempted to, there's a lot of people cheating, there's a lot of people being dishonest. There's a lot of awards out there that when we give, I would rather you be honest than get an award. I would rather you be a good example than a star player. Is that really true? Do you come away from practice? Do you come away from the game saying, what kind of example were you today? Or how in the world did you not swing at that third strike? Like, what's your problem? Where, what, what do we talk about? What's our emphasis? It's not that the game is evil. It's that oftentimes we can say, I don't have a greater joy. But then our emphasis is on something else completely because that's what the world emphasizes. You better be smart. You better be cool. You better be popular. You better be athletic. So then we say, things like, my kids are successful, man. They, they got good jobs, man. They got big houses. I don't care. I would rather you be humble than be popular. Like when you see humility in your children. I'd rather you be generous than be beautiful or on the cover of GQ. Like, I, I, do I really care that much how cute you are? No, I don't. Is that the truth? But do we talk to our kids that way? What do we compliment them on? What do you compliment? Because this is going to go beyond your home. I know this, there's some kids who are just so, oh, you're so cute. I, love. I, I tell you this, I stop myself. I'm like, really, that outward appearance, it's way down the list somewhere. Not even on the list. And is the kindness, humility, or generosity for the kingdom of God or for our own kingdom? Are we worshiping at the altar of hard work? I know my subculture. That's who we are. Oh, we're accomplished or at the altar of happiness. I just want my kids to be hard workers. Well, that's, that's good, 
but is it for their glory or for the glory of God? I just want them to accomplish their dreams. Well, okay, but I ask you, are their dreams God's plan for them? Or I just want them to be happy. I hear that from parents. It's like, no. What they think is going to make them happy or what they think is best for them might be totally different than what's pleasing to God. Might be totally different than walking in the truth. Or are we worshiping at the altar of pride or the altar of greed or personal prestige? And a lot of times it comes down to this, that there are some very godly attributes that, that, that we admire, but we can be tempted to use them in the wrong manner. I off, offer you a fifth question. What does your time tell your kids? Because we can say with our words, this is the most important thing to me. But your time, your commitment, your delight, your priorities, and your money tell your kids what's most important. You can tell them all you want with your lips. I want you to live for, for Jesus. I want you to be a Christian. I want you to make good decisions. But when you're way more delighted with other things, your kids know that. When your time is way more committed to other things, they know that. They, they act stupid, but they're not stupid, right? They, they, they see what makes us tick. Our homes are a reflection of who we are. That's hard for us to stomach sometimes. We are individuals. We have individual choices. Your kids have choices, but there's an emphasis in the home. When I talk about the way I was raised, it's not anything to say like, oh, you know, look at me, because I didn't raise myself, right? So I'll say, oh, but I, I, I genuinely think about my mom and my dad and what delighted them the most. And if I would do something that was esteemed by, by the world or was even esteemed by the church, but it shouldn't have been so, I can honestly say that it was not that great of a delight to them compared to walking in the truth. I come away, I, I loved baseball. And if I come away from a game and, and I did well, I mean, yeah, it was a smile, but it wasn't like, yeah, that's what I'm living for. My dad lo loved to hunt. He hunted with hounds. He, it was like from the time I was a little kid, he, he chased coons and, and bears and bobcats. Like he, that's what he, what he lived for until the, the Lord saved him. And said, like, you can't live for this anymore. It's not wrong, but you can't just chase animals around and, and kill them all the time. Like, that's not what, you, this is not your number one. And, and like, that's not what you're for. But I hunted with my dad a lot, even as a little kid, and seeing like, oh, this is the first time this happened or that. You see like some dads with their kids. And you know, when they, when they deliver and they win that, championship and you know they're hugging their kid or when they shoot their first buck or when they live it out with this like, yeah but there's no delight like that when it comes to walking with God when's the last time you hugged your kid and cried for them because they chose to walk for Jesus and your kid sees that when's the last time you made a commitment to something that is everlasting you paid money you went there you said we cannot miss this and, and it it wasn't karate or ballet or baseball or hunting. Now, once again, you say, well, those things aren't wrong. We've, we're ballerinas for the God, glory of God. We're, we, we arise, kill, and eat for the glory of God. Do we really? That's what I'm asking us. Or is that stuff just, are these just our pleasures? 
are we more greatly delighted with those things? Or you see your kids start to accomplish, like, man, look at how smart they are. Man, that must be because of me. Um, and it's not. <laughs> what does God care about? What does your time, what do your priorities, what do your commitments tell your kids? My dad, I told my dad I was going to graduate from Davis, and he was like, oh. He, I mean, it was like it didn't even phase him. He's like, where are you graduating from? Okay, okay, that's good. I was like, will you come? Yeah, it was like, and it's not that he didn't love me, but my parents were like, oh, this is a really awesome accomplishment. I was like, oh, that, that's good. Way more enthusiasm about way, way more important things. I ask you this. Let's broaden it because it's going to get worse Number six, what makes God rejoice? When does the Lord rejoice? When we walk in truth. Let's go to the next little book, Jude. And look what it says in verse 24. This is a verse worth memorizing. It tells you something about the heart of God and what makes him glad. When does God get amped? When does God get pumped? When does God overflow with joy? Look at what it says. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. There's the Lord. And he is the one that can keep you walking in the truth to keep you from stumbling. Isn't that what the verse says? And he can present you faultless before the presence of the Lord with singing because he gave his life on the cross. He can say, here is my perfect child. Not because we're practically perfect, but because he's forgiven us of our sins. When you are not stumbling, when you lean on him to hold you up, it says here that that is the Lord's exceeding joy. Some versions even translate it before his presence with singing, that the Lord sings over you and over me when we walk in the truth. It brings our father great delight. If you're a godly mother, if you're a godly father or a godly grandparent, you know what kind of delight that is. That's just a sliver of what God has towards me and towards you. It overflows from his heart to see us live in a way that pleases him. You're not saved by living a pleasing life. He gave his life for you, and if you'll believe in him by faith, he'll receive you unto himself. Do you know that? I don't want you to get mixed up between your salvation and your sanctification, but the Lord is delighted. He has great joy when you have the right priorities when you make the right decisions, the pure ones. That's within our minds, it's within our hearts, it's with our schedules. It brings him great joy. Think about the father who was on the porch looking for his son to return to him. His son had been living in the pig pen. He had been serving immorality and greed, and now his sin had brought him to a low place. And that father was looking for his son. And when his son turned and came home, what was the reaction of the father? He ran to him. He was filled with joy. He hugged him. He kissed him. And he said, kill the fatted calf. We're throwing a party. My son was lost, and now he's found. He was dead, and now he's alive. That is the joy of God for me and for you. When we stop living in the pig pen of the world 
and we say, I'm yours. I don't deserve to be yours, but I'm just here to serve you. I'm here to walk in your truth. It brings God great delight. Last question, do you rejoice for each other? Because if that is God's joy, and it is, and if it should be our joy for our kids and our grandkids, and it should be, when you see your fellow Christian walking strong, does that make you joyful? You should rejoice. I mean, this is an odd way to put it, but that's what impresses me. Not just the talk, but the walk. Do we rejoice in the Lord? Or is it like, well, you know what? They're growing in that area. But there's quite a few other areas that they just aren't growing in very much. You know, if the Lord tarries and we're here together for you know, more and more decades, none of us are going to die perfect, you guys. There's going to be problems, and I'm not making excuses for those. I'm just saying, when you see God get a hold of somebody's life in an area, and like, look at them. They're changing. Do we rejoice? Are we glad about that? We should. We're not supposed to be in competition with each other. We're supposed to be rooting for one another. We're on the same team. Now look at the world for just a second here. Their behavior is just really obvious and predictable. Do you think Mark Zuckerberg is happy for Elon Musk when he is successful? We know he's not. Do you think Jeff Bezos is like, yeah, Mark Zuckerberg's doing awesome. No, so these are the big names, the rich, right? The smart, they have competing social media companies. And we're like, are you kidding me? They, they despise each other. They're just trying to outdo each other. They want to be the richest and the smartest. They want people to look up to them. We're like, wow, that's just so petty. That's so worldly. It's, but it's pretty obvious, isn't it? I mean, do you really think that, that Katy Perry is happy for Taylor Swift? <laughs> There's no way. She hates her guts, and you know it, and I know it. So I'm like, oh, she, you know, she's doing really well. She just pulled in a billion dollars on her tour. That's my sister. No, she, they're in competition with each other, right? And we say, that is the world, right? So if I've just left some of you guys like out there, and you're like, what is he talking about? What if Brock Purdy and Christian McCaffrey were in competition with each other, listen, listen, for the MVP, what if the Niners quarterback and running back were like, you know, what we care about most, I, I want to be the most valuable player. How messed up would that be? Really messed up. Because their goal isn't supposed to be for their personal gain or attention. Their goal, they're a team. And, and if Brock is thinking, well, I'm not going to throw him this TD, I'm going to throw it to somebody else, right? You would say, even if you don't care about the Lord, that's some messed up football. He cares more about himself and the competition that he has with his so-called teammate than he cares about the team and winning, which is supposed to be the point, right? It's not just participation, right? We want the Super Bowl. If you have a favorite football team, that's what you want your team to want. You don't want to be like, they're competing with each other. You would say, that's messed up. I hope that's not the case. Now, how about the church? How messed up would it be if we were in competition with each other individually? We look at the world and we say, look at them, how selfish they are. They're trying to outdo each other. Yeah, they're rich, famous, or talented, or whatever. Oh, man, they're just... But in the church, what if you and I 
we're envious and jealous and competitive with one another instead of being complimentary. What if when your brother or your sister was walking in truth, you're actually hoping they would stumble? You're actually hoping they wouldn't grow in their gifting. You're actually hoping that they wouldn't be strong. I bring you back to the prodigal and I bring you back to the, his brother. Because that brother was not rejoicing for the return. In fact, he was, what's the other R word that you would put in there? He was resentful. When he saw his brother being brought back into right relationship, when he saw his brother grow and change, it was like, who does he think he is? This is my spot. I see that spirit of competition in our church. Not, all, not for all. That spirit of envy, that spirit of jealousy, and it should not be there. My unsurpassed joy should be for you to walk in the truth. Unsurpassed joy, no greater joy than to see you grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, to see him use you, to see him be glorified in your life. And the second we start to be in competition with each other, we are believing the lies of Satan. We're a lot more than a team. We're a body. And we're after a lot more than a Super Bowl or a game. We are after the glory of God. And for us to say, is this really my, my unsurpassed joy? In fact, does it really give me any joy at all? And if it does give me joy, is it a huge delight to me? A greater delight than anything I can think of? We can be tempted to be suspicious, to be accusatory, when really we're supposed to be very complimentary. Would you like it if, if me and Arthur and Nick were like in competition for who was going to be the better teacher? Would that be good for our church? Would you like it if, if Jeremy and Gary and I were like, okay, who's better than this person? Is that, is that Christ-like? I mean, we can compete over who makes the best cake or who has the best cleaning team. I mean, you name it. We can be, and then we can start competing in the arenas of the world. Who's the cutest? Who's the smartest? Who cares? The devil wants us to live that way. I want to be like Jesus and rejoice in the growth and the walking in truth, the good decisions to root each other on. That's the way it's supposed to be. Do you rejoice for one another? Oh Lord, we so need your spirit to be like you. I just can't be like this unless I'm walking in the spirit, Lord. And so I pray for the eyes to see the seeds of division and competition. I pray that we wouldn't take it lightly and we would truly, Lord, be glad and rejoice instead of being underhanded or envious, Lord. I thank you for the, the body that you've made us, the one voice, the one group with the one glory that we're supposed to be pursuing, Lord God. And I pray that, 
we'd be living it all for you. Um, that The yearning of our heart would be to, to hear you say, well done. And, Lord, to hear you say that for others. That that would be our great delight, that that would be our great joy. To not just say, like, I, I, I want to be the one that's recognized by the Lord and, and told that I live for him. I want my brothers and sisters to be there with me before that, before that throne when you say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in, Lord. There's, there's room for all of us. I pray that we would make room for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.